Hello, hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney, on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This program is produced in association with the UTS Business School, and each week we take a closer look at the numbers that make up the news. Well, Melbourne is in lockdown and COVID-19 has returned with a vengeance to the state of Victoria. And despite the best efforts of governments and citizens alike, aged care facilities remain a battleground in the fight to limit the escalation. Efforts to flatten the curve have now become efforts to limit the spread, and for Australia's elderly and aged care facilities, the risks are tenfold. It seems that it often does take a national crisis for cracks in a system to become visible. And under the harsh light of COVID-19, the aged care sector has revealed systemic issues in its ability to provide adequate care, workers and now protection against an invisible enemy. Joining us today is Dr Michael Woods, Professor of Health Economics at the Centre for Health Economics Research and Evaluation at the University of Technology, Sydney. He's also on the board of the Australian Digital Health Agency and a member of the Aged Care Financing Authority. And Ian Hensch is the Chief Advocate for National Seniors Australia. Thank you very much for joining us. As it stands, Melbourne is on the cusp of a stage four lockdown with 493 new cases and 11 deaths since yesterday. Eight of the deaths were linked to known outbreaks in aged care facilities. There are 1,186 active cases in Victorian aged care. So the sector has seen some of the most acute effects of the coronavirus and in many ways has become a lightning rod for general frustration towards systems that were ill-prepared for this crisis. So to start off the discussion, would it be fair to say that the cracks in the system have very quickly become yawning chasms. I think in context, it's appropriate to say that Australia is not alone in this and, in fact, is not showing the worst symptoms globally uh, within residential aged care, that places like Britain and Canada have much higher rates. But nonetheless, that doesn't mean that people's loved ones you know, they're, they're dying. They're suffering. The families are suffering greatly. The aged care system has been shown to need a lot more attention on the clinical side of the care that it's providing, both in terms of staff training, PPE and all of those issues and just the overall funding of staffing in residential aged care. And Ian, do you have anything to add to that? Yes, I do. I, I think that what we've seen with this is the abject failure of the system that we've got at the moment. And that is because we simply don't have people that are trained properly. We have a casualisation of the workforce that's assisted in some of the spreading of it. There was an aged care royal commission set up just before this happened and was taking evidence. In fact, was supposed to be handing down its report about the time that the COVID outbreak took place. But that aged care royal commission highlighted something which I think is very important for people to remember. And that is that uh, there are many thousands of people that go into residential care who shouldn't be in there. Uh, they're people who want to stay in their own home and get care in their own home. When the Aged Care Royal Commission started, there were 130,000 people on the waiting list uh, for a package. This is a support package so they can stay in their own home. And it's worth noting that Australia 
has one of the highest rates of institutionalised aged care in the world. And uh, the OECD figures bear that out. So we've got to actually look at what this pandemic is telling us. It's telling us that people want to stay in their own home, be cared for in their home, and only unless you really need institutional care go into a home. And it's quite surprising in a way that what we've got in Australia is, uh, over the last few years, an industrialised version of uh, care being run by people who are profiting from it. And in fact, the profit sector is starting to take over from the not-for-profit sector. But regardless of whether it's for-profit or not-for-profit, we're ignoring the needs of older Australians who want to stay in their own home. You've obviously mentioned the fact that the aged care industry has, over the last decade or two, become industrialised to a level where most people assume that residential care is the, the end product. Do you think that it's particularly indicting on the industry that people assume that that is the only path when, in fact, as you've made very clear... There are many alternatives. Well, I think one of the things we have to recognise is we should ask people what they want and try and give them what they want in their own home. And I'm sorry to say that that's not happening. I mean, if you go back before my mother's generation, uh, when I was growing up in the late 1950s, early 1960s, all our relatives died in their homes or after a short journey to the hospital, died in hospital. So we now live in a world where... I suppose people don't want to provide the care themselves, but we have the option of having carers come to the home. If you look at the amount of care you get in an aged care home, the Royal Commission found that the average hour of care given to someone in aged care was 2.66 hours of care. It was somewhere less than three hours of care. It may have gone up or down, but it's less than three hours of care per day. Now, it's possible to do Uh, that same amount of care, and if the person who already provides money when they go into an aged care home, they give up 75% of their pension and they pay daily fees if they are not pensioners. Uh, If they paid for that care on top of a level three or four home care package, they might be getting more care in their home than they would in an aged care home. And if you explained that to people and said, look, we're going to set the system up that way, it may well be better for the person themselves and for their family and give them a better quality of life. Sadly, over the last 20 years, it's become uh, the, the, the option that is being almost pushed onto people. And Professor Woods, you've been a big part of this process for a very long time. There's been more than 20 such inquiries into aged care stemming back to 1997. So why has the sector routinely come under the scrutiny of the public eye? And yet why has so little ultimately changed? Well, I'm not sure that so little has changed. Uh, I agree with Ian completely, as would all those in the sector, that much more home care is needed. Um, A a couple of contextual comments are probably worth making. One is that, in fact, the program that most people who do receive subsidised aged care go to is the Commonwealth Home Support Program. When you look at the numbers, there are over 800,000 people a year who get support through that program compared to the 240-odd thousand who get residential care and the 130-odd thousand who have home care packages. So, So most people do know that there is more than residential care. And in fact, just on sheer numbers, 80% or more there get Commonwealth Home Support Programs. And that includes nursing and allied and um, home maintenance and meals and transport and all the rest of it. But also there, there will still be some who need to go into residential care for various reasons. Now, some of that will be at the clinical end. 
And we know that end-of-life care, palliative care, is becoming an increasing issue for residential aged care. We also know that over half of the people in residential aged care have a diagnosis of some form of dementia. The balance in that case, though, is that what we don't want to do is confine them to a hospitalised setting. We need good clinical care, quite clearly, and what the COVID-19 has shown is that that's not always being provided sufficiently. But there are also those people's homes for, albeit sometimes a short period, but sometimes uh, can be several years. So it also has to be in a home-like environment for those who have some level of clinical need but not be hospitalised. There's the danger of medicalising residential aged care, which I think is taking the balance a bit too far the other way. So we need to have the right clinical care but we also need to provide a home-like environment and it's getting that balance right. I think you're absolutely right. The The answers are very complex, but what we cannot uh, hide away from is the OECD nations with people in residential versus home care from 2016. And the only country that has about the same as us is Portugal. And then if you look down through the list, every other country, Luxembourg, Estonia, Slovenia, Finland, Canada, Korea, they all have far greater levels of home care than we do. Now, you know, if, if, you're, if you're talking about a, a, a competition as to who's got the most institutionalised residential care, we're right up there on the final dais. And that says to you that there is something out of proportion. The other thing, of course, is that when you talk about that, um, Professor Woods, the, the, the inability of people to actually take up some of these home care packages, part of the reason is because we've managed once again to corporatize home care by giving it to the private providers who are taking large sums of money in administration costs. The Royal Commission heard that some people are losing 37 to 40 uh, cents in the dollar uh, just purely in administration costs for the in administration of the home care pack. And that's being done by the so-called not-for-profits as well as for the profits. In fact, some of the for-profit providers of home care are providing double the hours of care at home. So once again, we've actually got to look at what is actually being given for the tax dollar we need to be able to look at where this money's going and how it's being spent. After all, it's taxpayers' money. I completely agree. Nobody wants to be on the league ladder, as you put it, um, of where Australia currently is. So the, the whole emphasis of of uh, advocates in the sector, whether it's COTA or yourselves or others, are appropriately pushing for much more care in the home. And because all of the research demonstrates that that's what people want and it's what's best for them. You know, when there's a car accident, you put in a stop sign. When you have something like this, uh, we actually stop and reflect on could we do things better? I actually think that uh, we've actually done very well during the COVID crisis, particularly from the state that I'm talking to you from, which is South Australia. But now we've got this runaway situation in Victoria. And when people look at that, they're able to see perhaps why it's happened there. Part of it was due to community spread. But also part of it was to do to the casualisation of the workforce, where people are moving from one place to another. And even though they may have had some symptoms, they may have turned up for work. Unless we investigate that, 
we won't be able to actually stop the spread elsewhere. So I'm hoping that's being looked at very carefully at the moment. And many of those workers in aged care are in very precarious, casual working arrangements. And in fact, the Fair Work Commission, in ruling in favour of two weeks paid leave for aged care workers displaying symptoms of COVID or having close contact with a case, made clear that there's a real risk, just as you've mentioned, Ian, that employees who do not have access to leave entitlements might not report COVID-19 symptoms, which might require them to self-isolate. So we're already on the topic of fun. How could the workforce be strengthened? Last Monday, the United Workers Union released a survey of a thousand aged care workers and found two thirds of those workers say they do not feel very prepared if there was a coronavirus outbreak at their centre. Three in ten say they haven't had the training in how to use PPE equipment and 75% of the workers said their facility simply didn't have enough staff to provide quality care. So it's quite a damning indictment on the workforce or indeed the way that the workforce has been structured. How do we resolve that? Do we need more financial incentives to get better skilled workers into the sector or is there another way of addressing this? Some of it's management. A lot of it is whether the funding is sufficient to pay for bringing the right incentives to bear for high quality staff. I mean, I think most of the staff who work there are very well-meaning and caring and devoting their, their working lives to the elderly, but they need a lot more support and development they need investment and they need to be encouraged to to stay in that sector with appropriate wages and other conditions of employment that show that they're respected uh, for what they do and for the care that they give to our elderly. And when we're addressing the infection rate at aged care facilities, the proper training and the availability of staff, obviously Newmarch House in, in Sydney became a hotspot, 19 people passing away after contracting COVID-19 while in care. That's in April. The situation has unfortunately changed dramatically since. Has the sector learnt any lessons from the examples of Newmarch and some of the earlier outbreaks in other facilities? Well, I can comment on that one because I think what we should recognise is that Newmarch did fairly well by international standards and not see it as being a an abject failure because in some of the homes where they had trouble, in uh, one in Canada, for example, I think there were 120 uh, people in the home and something like 70 of them died. We saw in, uh, infection and death rates overseas varying between 30, 40, 50, 60 percent. Newmarch, correct me if I'm wrong, had about 100 residents, so 19 deaths there was actually at the very low end of what, of what was sort of a world average, if you like. But that still reminds us that the, the situations we're seeing at the moment are that nurses are going over from South Australia, where I'm talking to you today. Uh, I just only came off a phone call recently from a, a man who was asked whether he would be able to go over to Victoria. He's very experienced, 30 or 40 years working as a as a nurse in aged care. And and this is because uh, there is no mandated level of staff in aged care homes. And perhaps one of the most curious things about the Victorian situation, and probably very intriguing and probably requires a bit more further investigation, is the fact that Victoria has one of the highest rates of publicly uh, funded aged care. So in other words, the state of Victoria runs aged care homes, and then you have the other group, which is the not-for-profits and the for-profits out there. Well, curiously, the uh, the state-funded aged care homes, which often aren't necessarily architecturally up to scratch because they haven't been built and as a sort of a hotel, if you like. Some of them look a bit like hotels. Apparently, the the publicly funded ones aren't necessarily that good. But what they have got there is they have got 
a registered uh, nurse and they have a certain allocation of, of, of nursing staff and trained staff to be in those places. And I think it almost reminds us of what happened in childcare a few years ago. There used to be often infection rates that would go through childcare. I can think of cases where there were children that died as a result of infections that had happened in childcare. There were also cases where children had been abused in childcare. There were also cases of childcare institutions which were being run effectively for profit with very poor meals and all of that. But eventually government said you have to have proper training to be a childcare worker. It's now seen as part of the education system. And I think that we need to look at aged care. And I know people are opposed to the idea of the medicalisation of aged care. But I think we've got to recognise that there are so many people with multiple comorbidities at the end of life that we do need to have nurses, registered nurses, enrolled nurses, highly trained staff uh, dealing with people who are often suffering from a range of health issues and treated as part of the health system. You know, you, you've got, when you go into an aged care home and actually have a look, you can see that, as I said before, these people are likely to live on average less than three years. So you are dealing with end of life. I don't think we've actually come to terms with that as a society because we don't want to have much to do with old people. We tend to isolate them and we tend to actually ignore their their needs. We have people being trained for aged care who do a certificate course online. I've also been told that you can actually go into an aged care home and have no training at all and still be allowed to work there. Now, we wouldn't accept that in other settings, but we seem to accept it with aged care. And the aged care industry, as they like to call themselves, will actually say, oh, you can't mandate uh, uh, that you have a nurse on site because that's uh, uh, treating uh, the problem with a very blunt instrument. And I think, well, a blunt instrument, really? I mean, would you, for example, have a swimming pool with 100 children in it and not have a lifeguard there? The Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews added fuel to the private versus public care debate last week when asked by a journalist whether he'd want his mother in a private care facility. And the Premier replied, some of the stories we've seen are unacceptable and I wouldn't want my mum in one of those places. So it's interesting to consider there are 800 aged care facilities in Victoria. Of those, 622 facilities are privately run and not-for-profits regulated by the Commonwealth. And then 178 are run by the Victorian government. So just to pick up on what you were saying earlier, is there so great a divide in services between public and private aged care? I don't think so. Uh, I think we've got to get away from the idea of public is good and private is bad because if you go back to the very beginnings of the Royal Commission, uh, one of the reasons we had a Royal Commission into aged care was because of a publicly run place in South Australia which was called Oakton and it was looking after people that had dementia. And it was very poorly run and there were some terrible horror stories that came out of that and that helped prompt the Royal Commission into aged care. There are private providers who do an exceptional job. I don't think you should uh, take that view. I also know of home care providers who are from the for-profit group, one of whom used to run Hilton Hotel who treats every single person uh, as a hotelier would uh, with hospitality and is very focused on uh, customer care. You, You can have good and bad in all areas. What you really need is a good quality manager and getting back to what we said before, making sure that the money that's being spent by the taxpayer is actually going to good quality care 
And that requires the Aged Care Commission and the Aged Care Commissioner to do their job to the absolute maximum to ensure that the system runs well. I agree again with Ian. We seem to have been agreeing on all, all matters at the moment, but and, and I wouldn't expect otherwise. On the transparency, I think we need to pay particular attention to the transparency of the care component. There are three three basic elements of funding uh, an aged care home. One is the care that is delivered, and that's by nursing staff and personal carers and allied health workers and the like. Uh, the second is the the hotel type service the food, the cleaning, the laundry and others, and the accommodation is the third component. With the care one, I think there's a very good argument that providers should not be able to make excess profits on care. That's primarily why people are there, and it's primarily what the taxpayer is subsidising them for. Now, I I'm not saying that you don't want transparency and accountability across the lot, but I think on the care side in particular, you need a very strong focus from the regulator, but you also need very forensic accountability and transparency and an inability to make uh, more than uh, a reasonable return on on delivery of services so that, in effect, you'd be ring-fencing the care amount and saying, this is here to deliver care, we want to ensure that that's what you are delivering and that it's high quality so that the the person receiving the care, the family, the taxpayer who's primarily funding the care, although there are some co-contributions in that space, so that everybody is assured that the care is being delivered properly, appropriately, and that nobody's generating any excess profits from it. Professor Wood, you've been uh, involved in the 20-odd inquiries into aged care since 1997. A couple of them. We often talk about the fact that Australians tend to have quite a short-term memory. That's probably most evident from the Royal Commission into Financial Services. Do you fear that this Royal Commission could simply become the 21st inquiry into aged care since 1997? I think I'd pick up from Ian's earlier point of never waste a good crisis. We do need to not only learn from this, but to make the changes that are necessary. But I'd also argue that, I mean, you go back to the Productivity Commission's Caring for Older Australians, and it doesn't matter whether you're reading a a document from the current Royal Commission or from the Aged Care Sector Roadmap or the like, they all strongly refer back to that because that report set the blueprint for the changes. It recommended that there be much greater community care, home-based care rather than residential care. It uh, recommended that that staff should be appropriately paid and that quality and safety needed to be separated from the department and moved into a separate entity. It recommended that pricing should be independent and transparent and not just the, the sort of prone to the budgetary cycles of government. Now, all of that is being progressively implemented, but not sufficiently and not to the depth that the COVID outbreak has exposed many of the failings that currently exist. Mm. And you were the presiding commissioner on that 2011. Indeed, I was just to uh, make us all very transparent on that. But, <laughs> but I mean, Ian can make his own commentary on it. But, you know, what I said is that uh, whatever you read at the moment, uh, they all go back to that base. We've got to recognise that in the past, say, uh, five or six years, uh, according to the Royal Commission, there's been... Uh, 
a corresponding increase in the number of cares, a small amount in, in the number of hours of care. But these people need more care because they are frailer and they are more, uh, they've got more medical issues now than they've ever had before. So this is actually a very big problem. One possibility is that we bring in a funding model that actually provides the funding for people. In other words, we have to pay a higher Medicare levy or we have to take out some form of insurance or we uh, draw down on our homes if we own homes and use some of the equity in our homes to buy care. But one way or the other, we're going to have to find ways of finding uh, ways of paying for better care and making sure that those that get paid to provide care actually give us value for money. And that's why I think uh, Professor Woods has highlighted that. So we're in furious agreement. What we want now is Scott Morrison to live up to his promise, which he, he said when he took over the job of Prime Minister before he was elected, on the day that he took over almost, he said, I'm calling an aged care Royal Commission to restore faith in the system. Now, if he does not address this problem of aged care, it will become a political issue and it will play out at the next election and it may become a key issue for whoever is in government. So it should be non-political. It should be, let's fix the problem. We know it's there. We have to do it now. It was the first century BC Roman orator Marcus Tullius Cicero who said that the harvest of old age is the recollection and abundance of blessings previously secured. And when it comes time to reap what we have sowed, the aged care system, under such enormous strain and public scrutiny, has shown itself to have some serious deficiencies. But as Cicero also said, nothing is so secure as that money will not defeat it. And today's episode has shown that tweaks to means testing and the taxpayer funding model, already unsustainable and likely to get worse, could give the industry the money to incentivise better skilled workers, provide equitable care across public and private facilities, and, most importantly, make your twilight years the harvest of good memories and blessings, just as Cicero intended. Thank you to our guests, Dr Michael Woods and Ian Hench. Make sure to catch the full show online wherever you get your podcasts. And most importantly, stay safe. I've been your host, Max Tillman. See you again next week.